0: Oh, something weird happened to me this week, guys. I'm gonna tell you a little story about what happened to me this week. Um, I was working from home on Tuesday, and I was doing some training, which was all very fun on Zoom. That was fun. And um, my wife, very kindly, decided to cook us some lunch, which was really kind. Um, she came to me and she said, "Oh, I'm cooking some pasta. It's got um, it's got uh, like the recipe normally has blue cheese in it, but obviously I won't put blue cheese in for you." Quick, quick show of hands, opinions on blue cheese. Who likes blue cheese? Okay, all right, all right. 50-50 split, interesting, interesting. Okay, so my wife comes to me, she says, I won't put the blue cheese in for you because obviously you don't like blue cheese. I'm sorry, I don't like blue cheese. I love blue cheese. I love all cheese. Cheese is practically my love language. I I was like, what's going on? What's going on? And she said, well, you never eat blue cheese. You know, I've never seen you eat blue cheese. We've been married nine years. I've never seen you eat blue cheese. And I was like, I thought you didn't like blue cheese, and that's why I don't eat blue cheese, so that it doesn't smell, and you don't think, oh, gross. So we've been avoiding eating blue cheese in front of each other for nine years. For nine years, and we've just discovered that we both like blue cheese. Nine years we've been avoiding it. And it turns out I've been married nine years, and there's still things I'm learning about my wife, still things she's learning about me. A few nods from people who are married there. But it's not just marriage, is it? That's kind of, kind of relationships with humans, isn't it? We're constantly learning things about one another. We're constantly finding out what each other are like. And it doesn't matter how well you know somebody, there's always something new to find out about them. And so that leads me to a question. What do you think God is like? Because there's always something new to find out about God. The beauty, the mystery of getting to know God is that we can't fully figure him out. There's always something. He's, he's endlessly knowable. There's always something new to find out about him. So what do you think God is like? When we sing our songs in church here, um, uh, what sort of God is it that we worship? I've got a friend who who came to me one one time, and we were having a lovely conversation over coffee, and he just said, do you know what, Gareth, this God thing is fine for you, but I I don't believe in God. I was like, okay, all right, tell me, why not? And he went on to describe a God that isn't the God I I believe in either. I just thought, oh, that's that's really interesting. He's, He's kind of, in fact, the God he was describing was a bit more like Zeus, you know, kind of sat on a cloud, throwing thunderbolts at people, feeling a bit angry with, with everybody, but distant and far off and aloof. And I kind of empathize with him, to be honest. Uh, none of us are able to get God fully figured out, but I, I want to humbly suggest that as important as blue cheese is, what you believe about God is even more important than what you believe about Gorgonzola, okay? In fact, the author and pastor, A.W. Tozer, he said this, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. That's quite a claim, isn't it? What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. In other words, our view of God, whether we think God exists or not, whether whether we think he's loving or not, whether we think we can have a relationship with him or not, our view of God has consequences for us as individuals as families, as communities, entire cultures. So my question, what, what do you think God is like? And like I say, for the longest time, I, before I started to follow Jesus, I thought God was just this sort of, yeah, there probably is a God, but he's this sort of aloof and far-off distant figure. He doesn't really want to have anything to do with, with me or indeed with anybody. And the thing is, that's not the God that we find in the Bible. The God we find in the Bible isn't disinterested in us. The God we find in the Bible, the God we worship, is the creator and sustainer of everything. He's the one in whom all things live and move and have their being. He's the one who crafted the moon and the sun and flung the stars against the majesty of the canvas of space. And yet this God, this same God, came to us as a helpless little baby boy named Jesus. And God revealed himself to us, to us, not in a set of abstract concepts, but in a person. The person of Jesus Christ. And that's what we're looking at this morning. When we look at Jesus, we most perfectly see what God is like. And so we're going we're to read from the Bible in a minute. And, and the Bible has all of these beautiful nicknames and titles for Jesus. And one of those nicknames is Emmanuel, which literally means God with us. God with us. Jesus is God with us because God loves to be with us. God is intensely interested in being with you because he loves you. I'll get a bit like embarrassed when someone says, oh, he loves you. I'll go, oh. But it's true. It's true. I've got to get over my Britishness. He loves you. God is intensely interested in being with you because he loves you. And so to our passage for today. Should, should be on the screen. Yeah, lovely, lovely. So this, is, um, this is from John 2, the, the Gospel of John in the New Testament. John 2, um, verses 13 to 22. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle, He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their temples. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. His disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews then responded to him, what sign can you prove us to prove your authority to do all of this? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. They replied, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you're going to raise it in three days. But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So what's going on here? Quite a lot going on in that passage. Let's rewind a little bit. There seems to be some sort of argy-bargy between Jesus and some Jewish leaders in the temple. So why does Jesus care so much about what's going on in the temple? What's, what's going on? What even is the temple? Maybe that's a big, better question to start with. Um, this brings me to my first point. God dwells with us. What is God like? He's a God who dwells with us. He isn't a far-off, distant, and aloof God. Even before Jesus is walking around on the earth, God loves to be near to his people. And so he has always made a way for them to draw near to him. And the temple is historically one of the ways God's people could draw near to him. A couple of of weeks ago, um, Matt kicked off this series of talks by looking at the tabernacle, this place where the fullness of God's presence dwells. Uh, and then, and then the, 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 um, at one point, it's kind of dwelling in this semi permanent structure of the tabernacle. And then, long story short, it gets replaced by a more permanent structure in the temple. And the fullness of God's presence dwelling there in the temple. And what's so remarkable about this temple is that it means that at one point, God had a home at a specific place on earth. God had an address. The same God who flung the stars into space had an address. And he gave his address out pretty freely to people to come and visit him. If you wanted to come and spend time with me this afternoon, and who wouldn't? I uh, just want to say, you know, uh, obviously. Um, then the easiest way for me to help you to do that would be for me to give you my address. Come on, come on. Come on. I won't do it now. But, you know, all of you turning up, we've got a vision lunch this afternoon. It would just be awkward. Um, but one at a time, we'll do that. But it would be easy for me to give you my address, and you can just rock up at my house later. That would be great. And that's, that's kind of what the temple is, a way to explain to the people of Israel how they can spend time in God's presence. There's a specific place in Jerusalem which you could go to, and the presence of God dwelt there. That doesn't mean that God was like, contained in the universe, because nothing can contain the God of the universe. Instead, the whole point of the temple is that it's the place on earth where God's heavenly home overlaps with earth. The building is this beautiful symbol pointing to the fact that all of creation is God's temple, making it tangible to the people of Israel that God loves to be with his people. And this shows us how important the temple is to both the Jewish leaders we come across in our passage and to Jesus himself. Because what happens in the temple has implications for how the people of God can draw near to him. Now, again, if you wanted to spend time in my presence this afternoon, and again, why wouldn't you? you know, then then my address might not actually be enough to get you into my presence. Because my house is a little bit faffy, it's a bit tucked away, there's some specific instructions I'll need to give you to get you to my front door. Firstly, parking's a little bit tricky around my house, uh, especially in the daytime. Secondly, there's a gate you need to go through, and you need to be looking out for that gate to get to our garden. And thirdly, one of my children will have almost certainly left a scooter for you to trip over just inside the gate, so watch out for that, okay? And those extra instructions to help you get to my front door, that's kind of like what the law is like. Now, the law is um, a huge chunk of the first five books of the Bible, including um, Exodus, which which Beth spoke to from last week, and um, Matt spoke from a few weeks ago. Those books, those contain um, extra instructions telling the people of Israel how to get to God's front door, how they could draw near to his presence. Now, from our 21st century vantage point, we might read books in the Bible like Exodus and um, Leviticus and Numbers, all kind of that, those first five books of the Bible, we might feel a bit weirded out by the sheer number of rules and regulations and laws involved. We might even feel that it's, oh, it feels a bit oppressive for God to give Israel this number of hoops to jump through, just to enter into his presence. But we need to consider all of this from the vantage point of um, an ancient Israelite living in ancient times. Every tribe in the countries and territories around you is going to be worshipping their own gods. And they will be trying desperately to please those gods with literally no idea of how to please them. They would just be making it up, they would just have to guess, really. They would be sort of doing random sacrifices, doing sort of rituals by trial and error in an effort to, to please the gods. And they would have no idea where they stood with their God. But the God of Israel, the one true God, makes it clear to his people where they stand with him. And he makes it clear the ways in which they can literally stand with him. How they can draw near to his presence. And so because of that, there's a very definite right way and wrong way to go about things in the temple. And so when we read in verse 17 that, for, that zeal for God's house will consume Jesus... It's because he wants people to be able to draw near to the presence of God. He wants, us to, he wants people to do things the right way so that they can come into God's presence. All of this nonsense with the Jewish leaders, the, the money changers, the merchants, doves everywhere. Have you ever had doves everywhere in your house? It's not going to go well, is it? You know, Doves everywhere. They've let all of this into the outer courts of the temple and they're distracting people from worshipping God and drawing near to him. Part of the problem is that the Jewish leaders of the day have taken a wrong turn in trying to locate God's address. They've tripped over that scooter, maybe. They weren't listening quite the right way. They've started valuing the temple and the law more than they're valuing the very thing the temple and the law are supposed to be about. are supposed to help them to do, drawing close to the presence of God. Now, once again, if you wanted to spend time in my presence this afternoon, and obviously, why wouldn't you? Um, if you came around to my house and ignored all of the instructions I'd given you, and you just sort of went about your own thing. And instead of coming to my front door and ringing the doorbell, you sort of, I don't know, just sort of peered through my, through my lounge. Hello. would be a bit weird, wouldn't it? Um, but if you just sort of peered through the lounge, instead of wanting to spend time with me, you just wanted to come and sort of shout at me about how great my house was. But you didn't want to actually come in and spend any time with me. I'm not going to lie, guys. I'd be a bit weirded out. I'd be a bit, like, what's going on here? But that's exactly... What the people of God have started doing with the law and the temple. And because they're so focused on the temple, they're completely blind to see that God is doing a new thing. The presence of God now dwells in all of its fullness in the person stood right in front of them. Jesus. Jesus of Nazareth. Mary's boy. And this brings me on to my second point. What is God like? Well, firstly, God dwells with us. And secondly, God is a God who wants to draw us near to him. The remarkable truth is, God doesn't just want to be a God who dwells with us. He's not just accessible, but he's active. He doesn't just cozy up and wait in his temple for us to come to him. He's actually chosen to come and be with us. Imagine if I came out of my house and I came looking for you. But if, oh, I know they're parking up, I'll go and find them because it's a bit of a faff to get to my house. He's actually chosen to come and be with us in the person of Jesus Christ to help us to draw nearer to him. The presence of God no longer only dwells in a temple, but dwells among us. And so when we look at Jesus, we most perfectly see what God is like. But sometimes, I don't know about you, but sometimes with our sort of historical and you know, media portrayals of Jesus, it can feel a little bit like we've made Jesus out to be this lovely, polite, clean-cut gentleman who wouldn't say boo to a goose. Um, boot to a goose, I like that phrase um, um, But this Bible passage completely upends that sentimental picture of Jesus I don't know if you've noticed He's got a whip He's got a whip He's not just got a whip He's made the whip Have you ever felt so strongly about something that you thought I'm going to go and make a whip Because that's, that's how strongly Jesus feels about this He's made the whip Jesus is the perfect person. So he's not having a temper tantrum. He's not out of control here. So what's going on? Why does he feel so strongly about this? It's because he's seeking to right a wrong that's at play in the temple here. Now, the problem with the merchants and the money changers in the temple isn't that they're selling things and they're exchanging money. That's their job. It's not even an inherently evil thing to be doing it sort of around the temple. Those are both completely legitimate services in that day and age. And, and the, the passage says that this is at Passover. So it's a big festival. You've got people coming from miles and miles around. If you're bringing things, if you're bringing an animal from miles and miles around to offer a sacrifice in the temple, it's a right old faff. Have you ever tried to walk to Exeter with a cow or even a dove? No, I haven't. I'd love to tell you a story where I have, but I haven't. But So these money changers. And these merchants, they're actually providing a really essential service to people who have traveled from afar. But the problem isn't the service they're providing. It's where they're providing it. Um, And our lovely visuals team, can I just have the little diagram? of Oh, there it is, visuals team, smashing it. Visuals crew, sorry, they're smashing it. Um, This is an overly simplified diagram of how the temple was laid out. The merchants and money changers from our passage, they're set up where I've put that little X. They're in the outer courts of the temple. Now, I won't go into a ton of detail, but basically the temple was set up as a bunch of, sort of different courts encircling the central place where the fullness of God's presence dwelt. And this place at the center was called the most holy place because God is holy. And God's holiness is good and beautiful and life-giving, but it's also an intense, powerful goodness which will burn up any unholiness which comes into his presence. And so to enter into the most holy place, there's all these laws and rules to follow to make sure that you're not taking any unholiness into the presence of God, to make sure that you're not unholy in the presence of God because you'll just burn up. In fact, only one person, the high priest, was allowed to enter into the most holy place. And only then they were allowed to enter once a year on the Day of Atonement. But then... Around that, you've got, around the most holy place, you've got the holy place. I like how they scaled the names down. Most holy place, and then outside of that, you've got the the holy place. And this had a lot of rules to follow still, but slightly fewer than the most holy place. And this is where the priests worshipped and where they drew near to the presence of God. And the rest of the temple follows that pattern. The further out from the center and the most holy place, the fewer rules there were to follow. And the bigger a number of people were able to safely come into the presence of God and draw near and worship him. And the outermost part of the temple was called the court of the Gentiles. And by the way, a Gentile, if you don't know, that's, that's just someone who wasn't Jewish. And so this was the court that was open to anybody. Not just the people of Israel, but Gentiles as well. And so anybody who wanted to draw near to the presence of God, but didn't know any of the rules... Didn't know what to do, didn't know what animals to bring, necessarily. Wasn't even the right religion. Wasn't even the right ethnicity. Anyone could come into a place in the outer court where they could draw near and worship God. And it's here that the merchants and the money changers have set up shop. And that is why Jesus has fashioned a whip. That is why Jesus is angry. The fact is, the merchants and the money changers are hindering the people on the edges, the people on the periphery. They're hindering them from being able to come into to worship God, hindering them from drawing near to God. And so if you forget that this is a diagram of the temple, then I want to ask you a question. Where would you put yourself on this diagram? If we cleared all the writing off, Where would you put yourself on the diagram? Vision crew on it again. There it is. Um, But where would you put yourself? How close do you feel to the presence of God right now and in your daily life? Because wherever you place yourself, I want to encourage you. I've had times where I've felt pretty close to the center, feeling great, feel like I'm living with God all day. There have been days where I felt very far away. Maybe not even on the screen, maybe somewhere sort of here. Where are you today? Whether you feel like you're living your life somewhere near the most holy place, constantly near to the presence of God, or whether you feel like you're living your life in the outer courts, on the periphery, and not knowing anything about how to draw nearer, the heart of Jesus is to help you draw nearer and nearer to himself. Jesus wants to draw you in closer to the presence of God. Jesus wants to accompany you on your journey, in from the edges, and he is willing to make a whip to take out anything that might get in your way. It might not be merchants or money changers, but he still fights passionately against anything which might stop us from drawing near to the presence of God. And that brings me to my final point. What is God like? We have a God who dwells with us. We have a God who draws us near. And we have a God who desires us. God passionately and intensely desires to be with us. He doesn't just stop at making a whip to allow us to draw near to him. He's willing to defeat death itself by his death, by his resurrection, in order to make a way for us to draw near to him. Because he desires us. Destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days, Jesus says in our passage. And the Jewish leaders reply, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you're going to raise it in three days? He's not speaking about a temple made of stone, but the temple of his body. Because Jesus, is, he's radically reshaping the temple mindset. He's rebuilding the temple around himself. And the temple of his body was indeed destroyed. Jesus was nailed to a cross and left to die on a cross that wasn't just placed outside the temple. It was placed outside the city walls of Jerusalem. So if you feel like on that diagram, you're somewhere around here, you're not even on the screen, Jesus knows what that's like. He was placed on a cross outside the walls of Jerusalem, far, far away from the center, far, far away from the most holy place. And there on that cross, as he died, so too did all of our sin and shame. So too did every barrier we have to coming into the presence of God. And something else happened as well. In another one of the Gospels, in the Gospel of Matthew, we find this account of Jesus' dying moment. And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Now, the curtain of the temple is the curtain separating the most holy place from the rest of the temple. It wasn't like your everyday purchase from Dunelm Mill. This was a 60 feet high, 30 feet wide. It was elaborately woven together. And Jewish tradition says it was about the thickness of a man's hand, put like that. That's a pretty thick curtain. But at the moment of Christ's death, this massive curtain was torn in two from top to bottom. When Christ died the separation between the most holy place and the rest of the world was removed. We no longer have to follow a list of rules and laws to help us to be holy enough to even think about entering into the presence of God. Instead, we are made holy enough to be in God's presence by what Jesus has done on the cross. And so now, we don't have to do anything to be holy enough to enter into God's presence except place our trust in Jesus, except let him accompany us into the presence of God. Those who live in Jesus and hear them, they find themselves in the presence of God. I don't know about you, sometimes I, I hear that. And like the Jewish leaders in the passage, we find ourselves thinking, no, 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 this grace can't be this extravagant. This can't be right. It's taken me 46 years to build this temple. Surely that must count for something. All we have to do is trust in Jesus, and we'll find ourselves in the presence of God. We can so often refuse to believe that it's that simple or that beautiful. We can sometimes end up with, I guess, sort of a 46 year syndrome. I've spent 46 years trying to be a good person, I've spent 46 years trying to get a good enough reputation i spent 46 years trying to pray hard enough, trying to be holy enough, trying to earn my way into the presence of God. 46 years, surely that counts for something. And Jesus, in all of his love, in all of his passion, all of his desire for each and every one of us, he simply says, destroy those temples you've placed your trust in. and Instead, place your trust in me. Place your trust in Jesus, the one whose body was destroyed and yet was raised again after three days. Friends, you don't need to do anything to earn a place in the presence of God, because God passionately desires to welcome you into his presence. In fact, you can't do anything to earn a place in the presence of God, because Jesus has already done it all. Through his life, through his death, through his resurrection— He's already made a way for each and every one of us to draw near to God. And now all we have to do is come to him. So what is God like? We worship a God who dwells with us. A God who longs to draw us near. A God who deeply and intensely desires us. And whether the presence of God has dwelt in a temple, a tabernacle, or a person, or a people, God's heart has always been the same. His heart has always been to draw us near, to draw you near, to draw me near, to draw each and every one of us near. And so if you feel far away from the presence of God, he wants to draw you near because he desires to be with you. If you feel close to God, He wants to draw you even nearer into his presence because he desires to be with you. You no longer have to follow any rules or laws or even go to a specific place or address. God has come to us all in the person of Jesus Christ and he's present here and now by the power of his Holy Spirit. Wherever we find ourselves today, God in the person of Jesus has made a way for each and every one of us to draw near to him. Amen.